0: hi this is andrew and this is keynote the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers hello everybody it's april the first 2022 i've been waiting for this day i'm a bit of a joker as most of you know Life is a joke for me. So uh, it's always April 1st for me, but not for the world. We treat April 1st as if it's um, comedy day. I hope today on our show it's going to be serious, although there may be an element of farce or comedy. My guest is um, a man who works at the Bank of England, a very distinguished economist. Uh, But um, we're going to talk about something which, in my mind at least, has an element of comedy or farce. He is the co-author of a book, uh, Capitalism Without Capital, The Rise of the Intangible Economy, which he wrote with Stian Westlake. Uh, that book came out a couple of years ago, and he has a new book out uh, called Restarting the Economy how to fix the intangible economy, also with uh, co-written with Stian Westlake. As I said, there's an element of absurdity here. The idea of an intangible economy means, of course, an economy we can't quite touch. It's perhaps the kind of economics which uh, might appear in Alice in Wonderland, but uh, Jonathan might be able to make more sense of it. Jonathan, welcome. You're talking to me from the Bank of England. I joked earlier that it used to be the center of the world in London. I'm not quite sure what it is now. This idea of the intangible economy and the notion of the restarting the future, let's begin with what exactly the intangible economy is. It's real. It's not an absurdity, isn't it?
1: I, I, it's not an absurdity at all, Andrew, and, and thanks so much for having me on and delighted to join you. Definitely from the center of the universe, um, as, as we like to think at the bank, as you say. Um, so I think the way to think about it is Coopers, the well-known accountants, uh, rank the top five companies in the world. They do it every March. So this is last March's figures. I'm sure the new figures will be coming out fairly soon. If you look at the top five companies, company number two, is Saudi Aramco, the uh, Saudi Arabian uh, oil and gas uh, uh, um, company, as I'm sure uh, the viewers will be familiar with. And if you ask the question, what kind of business is Saudi Aramco, what what, what assets does it consist of? Uh, The answer is, uh, you could put up a picture of the assets and you would just see they are huge oil wells, massive pipelines, gigantic diggers, huge tankers, all very, very tangible assets. The other five companies, the other four companies in the top five, are companies like Apple, Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. And if you ask the question, what are their assets? They don't have a single tanker amongst them. They don't have any oil wells. They don't have any diggers. They don't have any machines. They've got some computers and they've got some buildings, but those are their only tangible assets. What they have is a massive number of incredibly valuable intangible assets. And by intangible assets, I mean, in particular, those types of companies, software, databases, the incredible algorithms that they have, uh, which crunch all the numbers and do the searching for you, uh, and the reputation uh, that they've built uh, for uh, the kind of products and the kind of services uh, which they offer. So I think the intangible economy is a very real thing. And as I say, if just one goes to the top companies in the world, uh, four of them at least are absolutely dominated by intangible assets.
0: I looked up intangible um, and 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 the definition, at least online on Google of all places, of course. Uh, looking for the intangible definitions of intangible on intangible things, uh, unable, unable to be touched or grasped, not having physical presence, but Thinking about Apple, for example, I mean, they have their phones, they have their IP that protect their phones, they have their platforms, they have their stores. I, I don't really understand why Apple, for example, which I think is what a, a two or a three trillion, two or three trillion dollar company, depending where their stock lies, probably the most valuable company in, in tech in Silicon Valley. Indeed. Yeah. Um, why, why is that intangible? Why, why is that different from an, an um, uh saudi a, a saudi oil company or or exxon Mobil, which tended historically to dominate the uh the stock market
1: I, you know andrew you, you're absolutely right that apple do indeed have tangible assets and if you're holding an apple phone in your hand that is something that's very tangible but the thing that's valuable about apple... and i'm going to do that now did you have do you have a what kind of phone do you have jonathan um, I I do have an iPhone, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pick it up, and uh, there's a picture of our lovely daughters uh, on 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 the front on on the front there for you, just to just 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 to show that I'm not making all of this up. Um, yeah, so so indeed, um, uh, that is a very tangible thing, uh, and Apple have got a building, and they've got a headquarters, and they've got computers and all of that, but the value of Apple, I really think, lies in there intangible asset so to be a little more clear i mean think of the software that runs the apple operating system think of you know the ecosystem and the reputation that is around apple uh you know the app store and uh the, the programmers who are doing all of that think of the data that apple have on the searches that we do the music that we listen to all those kinds of things all of that knowledge is a deeply Intangible thing. And, and, and again, to if I can extend the point just a little bit, Andrew, if you ask the question, well, why haven't other firms become like Apple? So the obvious example would be Nokia. Right? Nokia was by a mile. It was the Apple of its time, wasn't it? It was by a mile, dominated the smartphone market, you know, you know, was, as I say, the Apple of its time. Uh, what did they have? They had, you know, they had buildings and they had all those things as well, but they just couldn't manage to get the intangible success. Uh, yeah, and Apple, I think a better, um, a better example actually assets. than
0: than Nokia is um, is BlackBerry. But mm, so, mm, so indeed. I take your point. Um, so let's accept that we do indeed live in an, uh, an int, intang- well, an economy dominated by companies like uh, Apple, whose assets are intangible. Um, you're certainly not the first or the last person, Jonathan, to observe this. Uh, what you're saying, though, is that there's a problem with this economy. Uh, the, the title of your book is Restarting the Future. Uh, my old friend Jérôme Lanier once famously said that he misses the future. He misses believing in the future. I wrote a book a few years ago called How to Fix the Future. Mm. So what has gone wrong, Jonathan, with the future? What's gone wrong with our in, intangible economy?
1: Well, there are a number of stories out there about what's gone wrong uh, by which people attempt to explain why growth has been disappointing, why inequality has been rising, why many social ills appear to be multiplying. And the stories that you hear are, for example, there's too much capitalism or there's too little capitalism or that technological progress is just all over. We got very lucky as a society in in the Industrial Revolution and the ICT Revolution, uh, but that's all finished now. We have to go back to the 1850s. And what we say is, no, no, we say the economy has been making a transition to the intangible economy in the way that we just discussed, but, uh, and we discussed the transition in our first book. In the second book, what we try and point out is that transition appears to be faltering. The pace of investment that we documented in the first book, Capitalism Without Capital, the pace of investment in intangibles appears to have come off the pace, basically. It appears to have slowed down, uh, in uh, certainly since the financial crisis. Um, and so in answer to your question, what do we think has gone wrong? What we think has gone wrong is that the economy hasn't got the right institutions. It hasn't got the right setup. Uh, in order to manage that transition. Uh, And with the inappropriate institutions, there's not been as much intangible investment uh, as we might like, uh, and hence the low growth, and hence a lot of the difficulties uh, that the economy has been facing in recent years.
0: You're talking to me, of course, as I said earlier, Jonathan, from uh, the Bank of England uh, in London, another famous observer of 19th century capitalism. Marx lived in London, wrote from London, wrote from the the the, the British Library.
1: Just up the road.
0: Just up the road. What would he have made of this in Hegelian terms? It seems to me as if you're arguing that capitalism itself or the intangible economy is one step ahead of the institutions which made it. So there's this peculiar gap between uh, the new and the old world The new world's coming into being, but it's being brought into being by the institutions of the old world. Marx very famously wrote about this in his uh, observations of the revolutions of of, of 1848. Is there some truth in that, in a a kind of updated Marxist or Hegelian notion of history?
1: I think part of the truth is that one thing the intangible economy does is it exacerbates the inequalities between different people in society. So, for example, um, you know, th- think think of, a, again, speaking to you from, from Britain, uh, I have to tell you, uh, about Britain's most famous innovation, uh, Brit- Britain's most famous example of the intangible economy. And that of course is Harry Potter. And if you think about what the Harry Potter, the whole kind of milieu of Harry Potter is, it's a collection of intangible assets. So the fantastic script that JK Rowling r- wrote, the software which is written, which does all the wonderful movies, the um, whole marketing operation around all of that, the theatrical design that puts it onto the stage here here in London and, and at other places as well. That's a collection of intangible assets. And pushing those intangible assets together, they have tremendous synergies between them. Uh, And the Marxists, I think, would recognize that that's created rather profound inequality. Uh, People like J.K. Rowling and people like the actors and actresses involved uh, in Harry Potter and the the software writers and so forth um, have grown extraordinarily rich on their ability to exploit those synergies and roll out uh, things like harry potter scale them up literally across the world so um he i think it was since he was deeply concerned about those kind of issues um might have been rather concerned about all of that as as are we but i think that's a different form of inequality in capitalism to what it was that Marx was talking about. He was talking about, obviously, the mesurization of the working class uh, who had only labor power to sell and the capitalists who only owned machines. As it turns out, things have been a little bit more equally spread uh, than that because people own stocks and shares and pensions and things like that. They own houses, they own computers, they now own a lot of their own machines. So in that Marxist sense, uh, that that sort of uh, division uh, is not a real one. Uh, but I think the inequalities that uh, that that come up in in uh, in a more intangible society um, are, are the kinds of things which. Yeah, it's the, uh, are I mean, in the it spirit.
0: Around today, we did yep. a show with the New York Times writer Peter Goodman about Davos man. We've done mm. so many shows about. And, and this one perhaps sums it up best, How the Billionaires devour, Devoured the World. Uh, yesterday, I actually did a show with the Cambridge University historian Gary Gerstle on the rise and fall of the neoliberal order. Is the Are the problems with the intangible economy that you write about in Restarting the Economy, is this due to what somebody like Gerstle would argue are uh, the consequences of the excesses of the neoliberal order or are your observations more structural
1: rather than political? They are structural um, and they're not political uh, and if I can go back to the Harry Potter example if you'll forgive me. No uh, please and it,
0: it, and remember uh, JK Rowling is, is very contemporary because uh, Vladimir Putin Borrowed the crusade against her in justifying his invasion of Ukraine. So she's relevant <laughs> in all sorts of unusual ways.
1: She, she, she's she's to blame for absolutely everything. Obviously, yes, indeed. Um, I, I mean, as I say, if you ask the question, if if you were to make the statement, "Gosh, isn't it outrageous that J.K. Rowling, you know, uh, 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 has been so successful and made all that money?" And goodness me, it's absolutely awful. Um, you, you know people when they make that statement have in mind a kind of rapacious capitalist who has sort of manipulated the system in some way and i don't know dominated some market by some nefarious means or paid off some politician or something like that and we say no the kind of maybe there is that inequality around but the kind of inequality that that um, that uh, the intangible economy brings uh, is quite different it's really as a consequence of some of the key Economic properties of intangibles, mm. and I know I mentioned a couple of them earlier on the synergies, the way that these things can be put together, and the scale. The fact that one can uh, scale up and show the movie uh, absolutely, uh, e- you know, e- everywhere um, means that the inequality in an intangible society has got a very different character. Right. So we've done a, a, a lot, lot of shows about
0: around. this, Jonathan. Um, mm. it, it, it's summarised by the idea of a winner-take-all economy, isn't it? Indeed. Indeed, The winner-take-all economy for J.K. Rowling is dominating the book publishing entertainment business. In economics, it's dominated by a Microsoft or an Apple. So Apple doesn't have any competition really in smartphones. Google doesn't really have any competition in online search. Amazon doesn't really have any competition in uh, either... Platform uh, enabling or uh, or e-commerce, the two pieces of their business. So what we have, and, and we've done a number of shows about this, is um, a, a, a kind of a what Barry Lynn calls uh, a new age of monopolies. He's not the only person. Uh, the the uh, the the monopoly of these dominant tech companies. Is this what you're trying to restart? This future where Assets, resources, value is more equally distributed?
1: I, I think what we're trying to do, we're trying to do a couple of things, Andrew, if I must say. One is we're trying to better understand where this monopoly comes from. And um, we've got to use monopoly sort of fairly carefully here. The, there are elements of the of of the monopoly of, of of the market dominance in search engines by Amazon by Apple. There are elements which is good, which are good. Which actually worked very well for consumers. Um, again, uh, you know, Facebook has got a very large market share of social media. Uh, that's because we all like being connected to Facebook, so we can talk to our, talk to our friends, or rather, our teenage kids can talk to their other teenage kids. We wouldn't actually find much use if we had lots of little tiny Facebooks. So actually, I think there is an area of the economy which is dominated uh, or the markets which are dominated by these tech giants, um, which can be very much be in the consumer interest. So I think we want to rebalance a little bit of the discussion uh, and not automatically assume that the, these large companies are abusing their monopoly position and are against the consumer interest. I think one has to be a bit careful actually in that area. you sort of trying to...
0: Uh, we all try to do this, I guess, Jonathan. You're trying to have your cake and eat it. On the one hand, you want to recognise the problems of monopolies, but you want don't want to paint them as profoundly evil as things that we have to get rid of. Is that right?
1: Not, not quite, Andrew. If I may push back a little bit on that, what I want to do is to make sure that the community who are suggesting regulation and who are suggesting uh, improving markets and market functioning, I want to make sure that that community is suggesting the right way of regulating and the right way of improving market functioning. So, for example, if we think that there is a problem uh, with Google uh, and uh, they are um, abusing their market power with respect to the advertisers, as has has been alleged, I think that's quite a different thing to alleging that, I don't know, the Google search engine is no good or, you know, whatever Mm. it might be. So I I think, as I say, we want to make sure that we direct regulators fire in the area which will have the right, uh, you know, have have the most... uh, So uh, I I assume
0: one of the people you're writing this book for is Margaret Festiger and the other EU regulators of big American tech.
1: Um, I th- I think it is, and we do push back in the book um at some of the more draconian suggestions they've made against these tech companies, because as I say, I think we can see some advantages uh, in these tech companies, uh, which maybe not everybody has. I mean, if I may, Andrew, just build on that point a little bit. Um, you know, it, 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 I, I, I I'm an economist and when these search engines and so forth first first came in. The economics community was fixated not on the idea that they would dominate everything. And this was a bad thing. Instead, the economics community, my goodness me, talk about, to compare different prices. Mm. The original types of uh, uh, um, types of uh, uh, um, analysis that were made about the Googles and the, well, the alter Easters and the Yahoos back in then was that this would be pro competitive because indeed consumers would have a lot more choice at the choice of a button. So, one of the things we think is really important is that uh, regulators such as Vestager should spend their time making absolutely sure that the price comparison website market works really, really well because that is an area where we can harness the power of tech to really help consumers. Uh, I think we think that more time should be spent looking at those kind of issues than some of these rather complicated issues about trying to break all these firms up.
0: We are speaking with Jonathan Haskell, the co-author of Restarting the Future, How to Fix the Intangible Economy, Uh, Even though it's April 1st, the intangible economy is no joke. It's the central reality, I think, of our economic age. I'm going to take a short break now, Jonathan, and afterwards, I want to come to your fixes. I want to come to how we actually concretely address the problems of the intangible economy and how we can fix them. So we'll take a 60-second break, and then we'll be back with Jonathan Haskell, the co-author of Restarting the Future. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening, or watching, or even reading about this Keen On show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keen On show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub Hub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but Lit Hub is. And on their Lit Hub Live page, you can watch these shows live as well um, in terms of uh recorded videos uh not live you can see all the shows on the LitHub youtube page so whatever your preference whatever your taste whether it's video or audio or text there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show now back to keynote We're back with Jonathan Haskell, the co-author of Restarting the Future. Jonathan, we talked before the break about um, the problems with the intangible economy. Um, You laid it out in a very concrete, tangible way. How are we going to fix these problems of our winner-take-all economy?
1: we talked a little earlier on uh, uh, andrew about some some of the suggestions on the competition policy side so i won't do those again uh let me go to science policy if i may so one of the things that the intangible economy we think is going to need is it's going to need a very well designed science policy because when uh all these firms are doing the kind of intangible investment uh, that we talked about before the break they're going to rely upon a scientific background, which is going to be incredibly helpful to them. Some of the basic discoveries uh, around coding and algorithms and software and computing and the power of the Internet and all that kind of thing, um, those there are are too many. uh, It's too big an issue. There are too many spillovers um, for individual companies to undertake them by themselves. So it's important that science policy provides a backbone uh, for firms uh, to prosper in the intangible economy. Um, And we've got some suggestions in the book. Um, Maybe they're a little bit UK centric, uh, but there are some general principles which we think could apply to other countries. Uh, Essentially, what we want to do is we want to allow for a little bit less centralised control and a little bit more experimentation uh, around science policy. Uh, In in many countries, uh, science policy and the provision of funding to universities is very directed and very centrally controlled. uh, And we think uh, that that should be relaxed a little bit.
0: Later today, um, Jonathan, I'm talking to a, a local, local for me, venture capitalist, Samit Meta about um, from um, a general partner of Granite Hill Ventures about cyber warfare. The investment ecosystem, well, that's what we call it out here, seems to work. You have venture capitalists; the state doesn't play much of a role. Are you suggesting that? the state, to borrow some language from Marx, is not going to wither away in this intangible 21st century? but it remains at the heart of the capitalist world in terms
1: of uh, investment? Uh, Look, it's a super point, Andrew. And on this, I am an Adam Smith uh, advocate. And as you know, uh, Adam Smith is characterized as being a free marketeer. Actually, he was very careful to say that the state should provide essential public goods, which the free market wouldn't provide. And a backbone of a science base is, I think, a good example uh, of where those kinds of public goods um, uh, would be underprovided uh, by the market. But since you mentioned the venture capital side, um, we also talk about that in the book, and it's terrific that you've got venture capitalists on because that's a very important symptom of we think uh, the intangible economy, and indeed demonstrates how important the intangible economy is, conventional banks find it pretty difficult to lend to intangible intensive firms. Uh, After all, tangible intensive firms, the ones with the ships and the boats and the machines and the planes and the trains and all that kind of thing, they can go to a bank and they can offer the collateral of their house or their building or their vehicle uh, in return to a loan. intangible intensive firm finds that really hard to do when they say to a bank, "Well, here's a piece of software or here's a new script for a new movie or here's a new design. Uh, banks not going to lend against that kind of security. And the venture capital community, we think, is a response to those kinds of difficulties. Here's the trouble, though. And here I speak with a very um, British hat on. So so forgive me, which is that it's proved to be remarkably difficult to duplicate that venture capital model outside of Silicon Valley, maybe Israel, maybe South Korea. We've had a lot of difficulty duplicating that here. We've had some successes, but nowhere near the successes uh, in the US. So uh, part of our uh, our, our recommendations for the UK and for Europe is to try to improve the situation whereby we can get more of that intangible funding uh, stream or the funding stream rather towards intangible companies uh, in the way that venture capital has been so successful in the uh, uh, can, can we trust,
0: I mean, you're a central banker. You're talking to me from the Bank of England. You even asked beforehand whether you should put a, a tie on. There's no ties on, keen on, uh, Jonathan. Um can we trust central bankers? I did a show um, last month with the excellent American journalist uh, Christopher Leonard on how essentially the, the Fed, is, and, and I can use this word because it's my own show, has fucked up the American economy through quantitative easing, uh, the lords of easy money, how the Federal Reserve broke the American economy. And I'm not suggesting that you guys at the Bank of England are quite as irresponsible as the Fed, Federal Reserve. But why should we trust 19th or 20th century central economic institutions like the Federal Reserve or the Bank of England, especially since now we of course have cryptocurrency. We have mm. done so many shows on crypto, on Ethereum, on Bitcoin, and indeed all the other uh, uh, P2P uh, crypto platforms. So, so so why should we trust? Central economic institutions in the twenty first century, when, as you acknowledge, we live in an innovation economy, we live in a intangible economy, shouldn't the institutions holding power
1: themselves be equally intangible uh, I'm not sure Andrew, if I may say they should be equally intangible, but I think they need to move along with the rest of the economy. Uh, And we've got some chapters on the Bank of England uh, and the Federal Reserve and and how there could be changes in the institutions. Look, the the part of the background against which the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank perform quantitative easing uh, is that world interest rates are extraordinarily low. As you know, they've been falling for about 30 years. So once they're they're on the way, back up now aren't they in, in, in indeed uh, that is true um but, but 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 certainly in the context of uh, you know you talk about the quantitative easing uh, in the book that you were just describing you know in the in the historical context um in the context of an economy with very low interest rates then um, central banks, when they're trying to use their interest rate setting ability (laughs) uh, uh, to uh, uh, stabilize inflation, um, it's going to be very difficult for them to do all of that. And hence, they've got to reach for other tools such as quantitative easing. So we do need, I think, an upgrade in the way that we run monetary and fiscal policy uh, if we're going to be in that world. But part of the reason, of course, we're in that world uh, is that the intangible economy uh, is upon us uh, and that's increasing risk premia and that translates uh, to falls uh, in the uh, on the, in the yields on safe assets as well. So um, I, I think, as I say, a, a, a redesign uh, is what's required, but not throwing away uh, central banking uh, entirely.
0: What about the role broadly of the state, especially when it comes to digital technology, we had the another English writer, Jamie Suskind, on the show mm. recently. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Um, Uh, his book suggests that, and this is in his language, um, politics in the 20th century was dominated by a single question. How much of our collective life should be determined by the state and what should be left to the market and civil society? And then he goes on, now the debate is different. To what extent should our lives be directed and controlled by powerful digital systems and on what terms? Do you agree with Suskin? And um, what is your argument both in capitalism without capital
1: and restarting the future in terms of
0: of of these systems
1: yeah look it's a really great question i think we've got a slightly different take on that so let me develop that a little bit um two visions i think that many people have of innovation let me say something about that and you'll see andrew where the state question comes in one vision of innovation is that innovation should be like the space program Right. The only way to get more innovation is massive spending by the state. No individual company would have yeah, gone to the Na- space NASA program.
0: style pro space program rather than Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos financing.
1: Pre- precisely so. You know, we, we, we can't wait for a particular billionaire to come along and fund the space program. What we need with more innovation is a very precisely, as you say, uh, that that's absolutely right. A NASA style. So very state directed. That's kind of one vision. And I think a lot of people who argue for more state intervention have that vision in mind. Let let me present a second vision, which I think describes the other end of it, uh, which is that incredible piece of high technology, namely the wheelie suitcase. And what's extraordinary about the wheelie suitcase, we talk about this a little bit in the book. Uh, on the screen in front of you. Uh, what's extraordinary about the wheelie suitcase uh, is that it is, it is the marriage together of uh, two rather elderly inventions, namely the suitcase and the wheel. Uh, and it's not at all clear that you would have needed a multi gazillion dollar effort presided over by the world's top scientists. I'm not quite clear whether whatever committee it was that was uh, running this whole effort would ever invented the wheelie suitcase. Instead, it was a very decentralized type of market style that would get you the wheelie suitcase. So where am I getting to? What's the role of the state? If your view of the state is that innovation is very much the space race kind of style, then we need more state we need more centralization. If your view is that it's the wheelie suitcase, we need a bit less state and a bit more decentralization. And part of the problem, of course, is you might say, well, why why can't we have both? Well, part of the problem, of course, is that centralized institutions by their very nature have to have rules and regulations in order to stop people lobbying and stop wasteful activities and things like that. So they become rather inflexible. So what we talk about in the book is ways that we might make those centralized institutions a little bit more nimble. Part of the way is by making them a bit more decentralized. I talked about that earlier on in terms of the science budget. But part of the other way is to make the state a bit smarter, um, uh, have maybe different people uh, running the state, perhaps people with more private sector experience. Uh, That's not saying let's have a bigger state or necessarily a smaller state, uh, but let's have a smarter state. Uh, And and we think that that would help reconcile those two kind of conflicting visions that people have um, about innovation. In my Fix
0: the Future book, uh, I I didn't write about the smart state, but I did write about the smart city, uh, particularly Mm. Singapore. We've done a lot of shows on the evolution of city life with the, the Harvard geographer Edward Glazer. Uh, he has a wonderful new book out, Survival of the City, uh, also with Ben Wilson on the invention of the city. Uh, he has a book out, Metropolis, Humankind's Greatest Invention. You talk about the city also um, in your book as perhaps a compromise between the, the anarchy of radicals like David Graeber and Silicon Valley Web 3 crowd and the old statists. What can the role of the city be? Jonathan, in this new intangible economy, how can the city help us
1: restart the future? Well, again, we think, Andrew, that the city is, or rather, the importance of the city and the growing importance of the city uh, is another manifestation of how the economy has become much more intangible let me if you'll forgive me go back to the harry potter example uh, where does the script writer meet the actor meet the software designer meet the theatrical designer with all due respect to the countryside it's not going to happen in the countryside it's going to happen in the city so in a more Intangible intensive economy; those interactions in the city are going to uh, occur more, and therefore city life is going to be more prized. And we think, therefore, that's part of the reasons. Uh, and and all those terrific books that you talked about document this as well. But we think that's behind part of the reason for the success. Uh, Ed Glaze's, uh book was uh, earlier book was I think called The Triumph of the City. Uh, yeah, we think it's part of the reason right we we think it's part of the reasons for why these cities have got more popular and where that takes you in terms of restarting the future is to ask the question do we have the right policies to have cities essentially of the right size. And uh, in many con- in many cities in the UK, we basically have cities which are too small. I mean, many people might know if they've traveled, they might know London. The important fact about the UK is if you go to the UK's second and third cities by population, Manchester, Birmingham, cities like that, it, in in terms of the scale of London, they are remarkably small. They're much, much smaller than the second and third smaller cities in many other countries. And we think planning legislation uh, has got a lot to do with all of that. And therefore, we're missing these kinds of synergies and these kind of advantages of cities, uh, which are very important in the intangible economy.
0: Final question, Jonathan. We've talked a lot about the state. We've talked about changing venture capital. We've talked about the role of cities. We haven't said anything about politics. Is there a need? For political, fundamental political reform in terms of restarting the future, you've uh, you've conveniently dodged that. You're an economist. You're talking to me from the Bank of England, so by definition, I guess you're not probably encouraged to talk about politics. But might we need, for example, to start thinking seriously about city states of the future, or changes in democratic infrastructure? Because none of this can be achieved. The the future can't be restarted unless we have profound political reform too, can it?
1: Yeah, and we've got some proposals precisely on the city side where we think that very restrictive planning uh, has been a political, you know, it's been created an enormous number of political difficulties. Too much time is spent trying to get around planning legislations, trying to influence planners. Too much time is spent with specialist planners telling you how to get around the, pl- the plans of other specialist planners and all of that. So we'd like to see a lot more local democratization around planning and a lot of political reform so that individuals living on streets can subject. or or manner of controls, uh, take a bit more control back uh, in their individual neighborhoods, uh, and uh, as I say, uh, make our cities uh, more fit uh, for the intangible economy. Good stuff. Jonathan Haskell, the
0: co-author of Restarting the Future, How to Fix the Intangible Economy, a very intelligent, coherent book which addresses many of the key problems of uh, early 21st century life. We didn't mention Donald Trump. We didn't mention Ukraine. Quite an achievement or Vladimir Putin. Actually, I think I mentioned Vladimir Putin. We didn't talk about him. So that was an achievement, too. Uh, Jonathan, as I said, your new book, Oxford University Press, Restarting the Future, How to Fix the Intangible Economy. is just out. I think it's a must read for anyone who does indeed care about the future. And we all should, of course. Uh, what else should people be reading on April the 1st? Uh, in all seriousness, not a joke, uh, Jonathan.
1: Uh, I've read two books recently, Andrew, which I've enjoyed. Uh, one is Leah Epe's book, YPI, called Free. Uh, yeah. She is an Albanian uh, who lived in Albania as a child under um, uh, under, the, under basically Soviet uh, domination. And, uh, uh, um, uh, Uncle Haja. As she called it. it. And she was on the show.
0: It's a wonderful book, isn't it? Really. I'm I'm so pleased.
1: Yeah, I'm so pleased you've had her on the show. Uncle Enver.
0: Uncle Enver. Enver,
1: That's right. Um, And uh, a load of just incredible, matchless stories about. She teaches at the
0: London School of Economics. She's a professor of political uh, philosophy there. So, yeah, it's a tremendous book.
1: She does indeed. So, I I like that book very much indeed. Um, uh, I also like a book by Joseph Heinrich called The Secret of Our Success. Um, which is a social anthropology book, which asks the question about why human beings are so successful. After all, you know, elephants are much bigger than we are, and gorillas are much stronger than we are. How is it that human beings have come to dominate the planet, uh, given our relative weakness and our relative fragility? Uh, And he talks essentially about social learning and the ability of humans um, to evolve into a sort of social system. I think it's a really interesting book. It's
0: interesting i'm talking uh, later today with eugene linden fire and flood the people's history of climate change he might disagree that we're actually smarter than the rest of <laughs> that's an interesting suggestion and finally uh, jonathan haskell co-author of restarting the future talking to us from the center of power in the world bank of england in london in the old city of london Uh, Jonathan, uh, who runs the world on April
1: 1st, 2022? Who's in charge these days? Well, I have to tell you from a European point of view, Andrew, um, it's Mr. Putin at the moment because he controls European gas supplies and European coal supplies. And gas and coal is a world market as well. So I wouldn't want to exclude others from that. Uh, But I am hopeful uh, that if we can make a proper transition to a green economy, uh, we can stop him from uh, running the world and instead uh, we can go back to the anonymous market which runs the world uh, in the context of an economy which is better equipped with to, to, to adapt to climate change.